I hope that's true for all of us, that we choose. And if it's not true for you, you can make that choice. Um, And we'd be glad to introduce you to that choice. So if that's you this morning and your heart is leaning that way, please get in touch with me after the service or someone sitting next to you who brought you and uh, say, listen, today, you know what? I want to make this choice for Christ. Would you take your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For those that are visiting, we're in a series in this book that's rather intriguing in terms of how we live our lives. As you turn there, I want to play pretend this morning. You like to play pretend? If you got kids or grandkids, they love to play pretend. So let's pretend your bank calls you. An anonymous donor who loves you very much decided to put 86,400 pennies into your account every single morning. And you start thinking, well, that's $864. And if that happens every day, that happens every week, in one year, that will be just over $315,000. But there's one stipulation. There can be no balance at the end of the day. You spend it or you lose it. There's no carryover. Now, I'm sure most of you could live with that, couldn't you? (laughs) Well, the truth is, there's a God who loves you very dearly. And every day, he gives you 86,400 seconds. And if you didn't know, time is the great equalizer. It transcends income, race, culture. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody gets the same amount of time. By the way, when someone says that You have more time than they do? That's not true. Everybody has the same amount of time. It is consistent and it's constant. And it's it's quantifiable, yet it's relative, isn't it? For instance, an hour is always an hour. However, they are perceived differently. Some of you are sitting here saying, when is he going to be quiet? This is the longest half hour I've ever heard. There's other times, what was that? Be careful. <laughs> I just started. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're supposed to say, no, this really goes fast. But you got to understand, sometimes it's long for me up here. Uh, there's other times we say, time flies. You're like, where did it go? That can't be X amount of hours. So we're going to talk about time this morning. But by way of review... Remember, we're talking about Solomon. He was king. He was very powerful and wealthy. And he set out on a quest to find purpose and meaning in life. But the key part of his quest was this little phrase, under the sun. He says, let's take God out of the picture. Let's pretend he doesn't exist. And he had the time, he had the money, and he had the power to do this. He was the top dog, and there never was a topper dog than him. He had more money. He had more time. He was king. He could write any law he desired. And so he pursued the, five, the big five. We talked last week about hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. This morning we're going to talk about philosophy. And I know for some, philosophy can be really confusing. It's about thinking deeply about life. I'll try to simplify that. Intellectualism, education, materialism, the accumulation of stuff, and religion. Religion is the humanistic approach to finding God. And we'll get into that in a few weeks. 
But remember his conclusion? After pursuing all this, after engaging himself in all these kinds of quests, this journey to find purpose and meaning, he says, listen, it's meaningless. Temporarily, it gives me pleasure. Temporarily, it gives me satisfaction. But in the long run, it's empty. It's useless. And so he uses phrases like chasing the wind. Vanity and vanity, all is vanity. So in chapter 3 this morning, we talk about philosophy. And there's three critical questions that philosophy asks. They are, where did we come from? Where are we going? And why are we here? Now, of course, in the Christian faith, God is at the end of each one of those. And God defines our value. He defines our design and purpose. And he defines what we call heaven. But take God out of the picture for the moment. How do we answer these questions? And this is what Solomon talks about this morning. Now I want to read Ecclesiastes 3, the first 11 verses. And when I read this to some of us who are older, this will be a more familiar passage. The year was 1965. The group was called the Birds. And they literally sang this passage to everything. Turn, turn, turn. There is a season. How many remember that? Okay. It, it kind of hung on till the 70s. But remember... This phraseology is looking at life apart from God. So it resonated with a lot of people saying, okay, why are we here? Where are we going? And what's going to happen after we die? So follow with me either on the screen or in your Bibles. Verse 1, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter. Under heaven. There's the phrase again, under heaven, saying, let's take God out of the picture. Let's look at life just as it is. And here's his conclusion. It says, when I look around, there's a time to be born and a time to die. It's a nice way of saying people are born and people die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep. And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. Then he asks this question in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Now again, you have to remember that Solomon is looking at life from a human perspective. And he's seeing all these opposites. We have this and we have this. There's 14 couplets. There's 14 opposites. So what Solomon's referring to here is this tension we live in. And in verse 9, this phrase, what gain has the worker from his toil... Let me say it this way. He says, who can make any sense out of it? When you look at life and you observe life from purely a human perspective, who can make any profit, any sense? That's what the word means. It's been well illustrated this past week in Texas. 
Brian referred to that already in our worship service. With the shooting of police officers, the threats of more assassinations in the days to come. It's been observed in the last month in our world where there's been several terrorist attacks in other countries and the senseless killing over religious ideologies. We think about our own country, the Orlando tragedy, and the senseless taking of lives, again, over ideology, opinions about how to answer about why we are here. And see, that's the problem with life, according to me. If I'm at the center, if I make the definition, then I'm going to demonize anyone who disagrees with me. And as soon as it's about me and my philosophy or my perspective or my ideology, then I stop listening. Because I've already made my mind up. And my only object in life is to get other people to think like me. When you look at the church in America, and I'm referring to the Christian church, I'm not referring to a particular denomination because to me, the church of Jesus Christ is the church of Jesus Christ. Denominations are human formations of that church. When you look at the church in America, my conclusion is it's split and it's weak. It's territorial and it's divisive. And what frustrates me is while people are dying, and again, multiple reasons, hunger, disease, violence, all around the world, we in America argue over our preferences. And that breaks my heart. So Solomon tries to figure this out apart from God. And when you answer these questions, when you look at these 14 couplets, and when you look at the opposing opposites, When you think of philosophy, there's three predominant avenues that you can go down to explain life. Now, there's more, but these are the three predominant that down through the centuries, philosophers have advocated and pursued and chosen. The first is what I call chance. Fancy word for those that like fancy words, it's nihilism. They say life's a gamble denies any objective or moral truth. It's the case, Sarah, Sarah crowd. Whatever happens, happens. Oh, you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Oh, you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They view life as chance. So we go through this having no idea what chance that we are thrown into. The second is choice. We call that humanism. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. I decide. We see this in the book of Judges in 17, chapter chapter 17, verse 6, where it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, with choice, there is no consistent moral center. It's whatever I choose. Then there's chosen. They call it determinism. They believe that all life is predetermined. We have no choice. And we simply live according to fate. Outside forces have already determined and made their decision, and we have no choice. And that's why you hear people saying, well, you know what? It's my DNA. I was born, and, and you fill the blank in. Addict, workaholic, 
It was DNA. I have no choice. It's been predetermined by some outside force. Now, that's a quick overview of the kind of filter that you can put to those 14 couplets. And when you look at those and you take God out of the picture, most people choose one or two or three. In fact, many people just kind of switch depending upon their circumstances. Then Solomon adds this in verse 10. After he says, who can make sense out of it? He says, I've seen the business that God has given for the children of man to be busy with. Life without God in the picture, he defines as busy work. I know when I was back in high school and teachers gave us busy work, I wasn't happy. (laughs) I was always the first one to say, why are we doing this? And then you said, because I told you. And that wasn't a good reason for me. But doing work for the sake of work gives no value. It gives no meaning. And Solomon says, listen, if you look at life without God, it's just kind of busy work. It has no purpose, no meaning. It makes no sense. Now back up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We didn't look at these verses last week. I want to begin at verse 12. And just listen as he goes down. Listen to the tone Listen to his thoughts. Listen to his emotions as he begins to describe what I'm calling busy work. Doing work for the sake of, well, just for the sake of work. Verse 12, he says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness. Here's the opposites. Wise people, mad people, and folly. Folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? So he's thinking, okay. When I die and I'm king and I got all this, I've accumulated all this stuff and I die and someone takes my place. He says, only what has already been done. Then I saw there's more, there is more gain in wisdom than folly and there's more gain in light than in darkness. So he says, you know, in the end of things, you know, it's better to be wise. It's better to be light. But listen to what he says in verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. You know, they all had a birth date. They all had a death date. Doesn't matter. Then I said, my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? In other words, what is the purpose and meaning of wisdom apart from God? And then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. There's that word for empty, meaningless. It's useless. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. People will forget me. Seeing that, the, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like a fool. So I hated life. You see the emotional reaction? Even though he accumulated everything, even though he was top dog, even though he had all the money, he had a thousand wives, he had multiple palaces, he had all the power and influence and people of the world worshipped him. He says, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. See what happens? You accumulate all this power and wealth, and you realize someday you're going to die, and you're going to have to give it to who? 
somebody. And he didn't like that. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also was vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair, hatred, despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This was eating him alive. This also is vanity, it's empty, and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. That's saying he didn't like his job. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also is vanity. Do you identify with those emotions? I mean, if you pursue life through a philosophy that takes God out of the picture, I mean, you will suffer this kind of despair. You will have these kind of questions. You will not like the fact that when you die, somebody else is going to get what you worked hard for. You look at life from your perspective, and you will end up in a negative spiral of emotion and vanity. So let's go back to the question. What's the profit? What's the value? What's the purpose? If you take God out of the picture, everyone does what is right in their own mind. It's truth according to me. There is no moral or ethical center except what I want. I mean, that's the conclusion that Solomon comes to. And that conclusion is always full of violence. It is always full of despair and depression. It's not based on how much money you have or don't have. It's not based where you live. It's not based what family you were born into. But then Solomon gives us a little window in verse 11. And we're going to talk about this more next week. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He being God. So when you bring God into the picture, you understand, and even with God out of the picture, you realize life is full of seasons. And part of finding purpose and meaning is understanding what season we are living in. And let's face it, some days life appears like a vacation, and other days it appears like war, doesn't it? And Solomon in this phrase says, we need the wisdom of God. Without it, it's difficult to make any sense out of this life. Without it, we come up with explanations that work for the moment, but in the long run give no satisfying answers. Without God to give us definition. Now, Paul reminds us in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he talked about this season. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, all of us know there is a season of being a child. We dedicated Skylar this morning. She is a baby. And babies are allowed to drink from bottles. But a 21-year-old, I would say no. And, you know, there's rites of passage, aren't there? I remember the rite of passage for a farm boy like me was being 16. You know why that was a rite of passage? All that hard work and money we earned when we turned 16, we could buy that muscle car we dreamed about for four years. 
birthdays are right of passage, even though you might start counting backwards now on your birthday. Graduations are right of passage. But when you study philosophy, they say the problem in our culture today is that we do not understand, and I'm going to use these phrases, what season it is. And let me illustrate with young men. Historically, there was rites of passage. At this age, at this age, at this age, here's when you became a man. Today, when is that rite of passage? We don't know. Today, for instance, college, for many, has become what they've called delayed adolescence. They never grow up. And even when they get married, delayed adolescence in a place havoc in a marriage. When raising children, jobs. And a lot of this is due, well, the reality today. We can see this in this expression. In America, we have a massive problem with absentee fathers. It's because they have never grown up. See, part of our problem is that we want what we want and we do not want to grow up. I was reading this article this past week. I don't know if you heard, but Kim Davis, who was notorious for some other things, is back in the spotlight. Why? Because she refused to give a marriage license to a man who wanted to marry his laptop. Kid you not. It's going to be decided in our courts now. His argument is that since the Supreme Court took away any definition of what marriage is, that he has the right to marry anyone or anything. This man has not grown up. Paul goes on to write this in 1 Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly. He's saying this life, you go back to Solomon's couplets, trying to make sense out of all this, it's like looking through a fog. We can see outlines, we can see figures, but we always don't see definitions. But then face to face, talking about transcendence. When we face, come face to face with God. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am, have been fully known. See, part of this understanding of what Solomon's telling us this morning is that we never see the complete picture. There will be things that never make sense to us. I want to read something I came across. It was a blog. Stated February 24th, 2016, by Linda Fell. Here's the title of the blog, and it's why I read it. Why I ripped up God's script and handed it back. She writes, on the night of the accident, her 15-year-old daughter. That's not defined here, so I'm going to tell you that. I sat next to my daughter's body at the scene of a two-car collision. As I sought to find her hand under the white sheet, God handed me a new script. I handed it back. I wanted my old life, not a new one. I wanted my daughter to open her eyes to say, hi, mom. Surveying the blood spatter interior of the back seat, instantly I knew that wasn't going to happen. Nonetheless, in the moment of shock and horror and seeing my daughter's bare toes peeking out from underneath the edge of the stark white sheet, The mind is capable of grasping for straws, and I was going for the very last one. So, again, God handed me the new script, and I tore it up and handed it back. I don't want your new script, I yelled. I had a wonderful life as a mother of one college graduate, one college student, and two teenagers. 
My husband and I were even blessed with our first grandchild. Life was wonderful, so no need for God to go change it. But I didn't win. God did. And I had no choice but to take the new script, and I ignored it for three years. Heck, I ignored life for three years. But when my dear, sweet hubby's grief consumed him at the age of 46, he suffered a life-threatening stroke that left him disabled. And I gave in and waved the white flag. There was nothing left of me. I was done, exhausted. Here I was facing a new kind of grief, and I had hardly begun to process the first. God's script lay there for months and months, and my heart broken in so many places. I had no energy to read it. The lines blurred together, the words indistinguishable. And one day, out of rebelliousness, I picked it up. And the first line said, when you help others, you help your own heart to heal. Seriously, God, I felt like a regressed teenager challenging a parent who knew better. I could hardly put one foot in front of the other. So how in the heck was I supposed to help someone else? But God failed to give instructions, and I wasn't amused. But I needed God desperately, so I gave in, and I waved the white flag, and I was standing squarely in the belly of hell. I had nothing less to lose. I wasn't entirely sure how to go about this new script, but herein lies the answer. I didn't have to figure it out on my own. One door opened, then two doors, then four, and so on and so forth. And now six years after the loss of our daughter and three years after my husband's life-changing stroke, I haven't figured it all out yet. But God's script isn't steering me wrong. Where am I today? I help others. Because this helps my own heart to heal. There I said it. Script accepted. God was right. She is the author, in case some of you have read these, called The Grief Diaries. It's a collection of writers and situations and circumstances where people share their grief and find hope in a multitude of settings. And this has propelled her to be a sought-after speaker and writer around the world because she accepted God's script. I look at all this, and you're probably saying, what do we do with this? Yeah, I can identify with Solomon. I look at life, and I say, what crazy things are going on and why? It goes back to the phrase that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's not saying everything is beautiful. Be clear about that. He says he will make everything beautiful in his time. And again, we're going to talk more about that next week. But here's three responses I think we can all make this morning. The first is trust. And trust I'm talking about is trust in God. There has to be a source that we trust. Otherwise, truth is up for whatever interpretation anyone desires. And if you want your version of life, then you have to let everyone else have their version. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not smart enough to figure all this out. I'm not smart enough to know why some people die young. Others live a long life. Some are born into wealth. Others are born into poverty and affliction. I know the first time I went to Zimbabwe where I saw and heard stories that I could barely get my head around. It messed with my theology. You know the theology that says I somehow deserve this? (laughs) 
I could not figure out how God could allow a president like Mugabe take power the way he did and slaughter the people that he did and oppress a country the way he did and still does today. I realized that Zimbabwe was far more Christian, and I talk about, again, not the amount of churches, but the amount of people and faith. Far more Christian in its population than America is, and yet we think somehow in America our wealth and comfort are tied to our faith. It's the theology of we deserve this. I don't know about your Bibles, but my Bible says none of us deserve this. It's all grace. And it's God's mercy. Second word or response is waiting. I used the word transcendence before. It's a fancy term about what's going to happen after we die. But we know as Christians, this is not all there is. And there's a perspective beyond what we know. And someday, like Paul wrote, we will see and feel and experience and it'll be transformed for all those who have a relationship with Christ. We call it the new heaven, the new earth, heaven. But we know instinctively that this is not all there is. And even though we can't make sense out of this, God has, and someday we will understand. So we wait. But we just don't wait. And here's my third response. We worship. And let me define what worship is. I'm not speaking about certain traditions. Not talking about what denomination you are or what preference you have for style of music or style of preaching. Worship, I'm talking about perspective and it's a way of life. It's we center God in absolutely everything that we think and we do. And those things we can't understand and make sense, we trust him and we wait. But as we trust and wait, we worship Worship is a life lived just not in an hour in a particular building. Worship, and and let me reduce it down to Linda Fell's words, that blog I read. You heal your own heart by helping others. You want to find purpose in meeting? That's where you start. That's the script. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close. And as they come up, I want to pray with you and for you. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, all of us are sitting here, and as we witness the news, and because of our social media, we just hear so much. Well, it's... It's terrible. It's horrible. And we try to make sense out of why people. And then we hear explanations and it doesn't quite answer what's going on in our hearts. And I pray for all of us this morning, Lord, because we wrestle with this. We wrestle with our own lives. We wrestle with what goes on in our own families, yet alone the entire world. But I pray this morning, Lord, that we just keep our eyes on you. And it's okay to have questions. You're big enough to handle those questions. It's okay to get frustrated, but we don't let our frustration define our life. Rather, we let your love define us and your grace and your mercy. It's okay to engage in conversations and disagree, but what's not okay is do violence to each other. It's just wrong. So God is the church. Give us a clear vision of who we are and what you called us to be. 
give us a clear vision of what it means to bring healing to this world and not hurt. Help us at one door at a time, not to react, but to respond to what we see going on around us. And when you call, may we have enough sense to listen. The world desperately needs what you have to give because you're the only one that can turn tragedy into something beautiful. And when we long for that day that we see you face to face, help us long to see you at work in this life and not be distracted. We pray these things, Lord, asking for wisdom. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said...